You are listening to a podcast from The National. The Abu Dhabi Economic Stimulus Program, Reden 21, kicked up a notch with the announcement of nine new initiatives. Can this spur the private sector's growth? You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. A little bit later on, we'll talk to Robin Mills, the Nationals Energy Columnist, talking about what the outcomes could be for oil markets amid the current tensions in the region between US and Iran. Uh, Right now, here is the other news you need to know from the national.ae. The UAE is rolling out a new anti-money laundering software system this week, becoming the first GCC country to use the platform developed by the UN's Office on Drugs and Crime. It'll make it easier to connect intelligence databases and observe trends. Non-hydro renewables, like wind and solar, will reach 2.4 terawatt of installed capacity worldwide by 2028, according to Fitch Solutions. Wind will account for 44%, while solar will make up almost half of power generation in the renewable sector. This will be fueled by rapid growth in markets such as China. US plane maker Boeing has released a video of the 777X test aircraft making its runway debut. As it performed a series of low-speed taxi tests, it marked the first time this plane moved on its own power. This is one of the many tests before the 777X takes to the skies later this year. Kelsey Warner, Assistant Business Editor, is with me. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Mustafa. Uh, So today I was down at uh, the Private Sector Forum, um, which the Abu Dhabi government put on as part of the uh, Redden 21 program. Um, They listed a raft of new and exciting initiatives that kind of surprised everyone to the upside, if you like. Yeah, you were at the uh, six-month birthday party for Redden 21 today, which rolled out in January. And uh, They announced at their party that they were uh, rolling out electricity cost discounts for industrial companies, easier access to bank loans, uh, and a new four billion dirham research and development fund. There was it was pretty broad ranging. Um, You know, I can I can run through the eight uh, initiatives um, a little bit later on in 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 detail, Um, but just sort of step back and say Redden Twenty One was announced last summer. There was a headline fifty billion dirham stimulus package for this year, next year, and the year after, hence why it's the six-month birthday, mm-hmm. even though the program, you know, we, we heard about it a year ago, mm-hmm. but it actually swung into gear on the 1st of January. Um, the overall ambition is to increase uh, non-oil growth. Uh, the longer term is obviously the overall diversification strategy. Um, they hope to boost the private sector. It's been you know, a pretty sluggish uh, couple of years, particularly since the oil price um, fell off from its 2014 summer peaks of over $110 a barrel. 2016, uh, early 2016 was a pretty, pretty, you know, low, low, if you like, um, for crude prices. And, and so there was a, you know, cutback in government spending. This, this program is, um, a, if you like, a return to government spending, but not like it was before. It's a little bit more focused, more targeted. It isn't about necessarily just building out a public sector, but it's about stimulate, stimulating sort of what private sector activity can do. Sure. And kind of reintroducing a new private sector to Abu Dhabi or introducing a more entrepreneurial knowledge-based economy and kind of 
reviving even how we think of Abu Dhabi's economy and what it's capable of, I think. So I, I managed to get a few minutes with uh, Rashid al-Balushi, who's the uh, undersecretary at the Department of Economic Development, which is very, very much at the center of a lot of these initiatives um, that come under the umbrella of Ghadan 21. Um, he, he kind of spoke to what you and I were saying and, and explained a bit more about what Ghadan 21 is all about. Let, let's hear him now. Uh, I'll talk about Ghadan 21 from an economic perspective because Ghadan 21 is covering three different uh, perspectives. Uh, economically is one of them, the social, the other, uh, the, the, the ma'rifa, knowledge is the third par- pillar, and the fourth one, community. For economically, it's uh, today, alhamdulillah, with regard to the uh, 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 growth of the economy and the, the mentality of the diversification that we do have, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin uh, Zayed uh, last year he have he had announced uh, the project of Ghadan 21. It's basically uh, uh, a project which which would live for uh, three years, 2019, 2021, and projects that would encourage uh, the new era of the economy. In other words, it's not about spending money directly to uh, individuals, to investors. It's about basically uh, uh, making platforms, making technology, making ideas, making funds, creating funds, creating hubs. And the purpose of that is to attract high-caliber people, students, anybody with ideas that would come here, operate, have all the green field for his innovative ideas. In a way that if he wants to go to Khalifa Fund, he has a choice. If he wants to go to to the bank, he has a choice. And the government, for example, would support the financing amount by up to 75%. If he wants to go to labs, he could go, he could do so. And even in the labs, if you wanted uh, financially to uh, support uh, R&Ds, there are funds to support that particular issues. And that R&D will not be monopolized by that particular person. It will be available to uh, other other entities. So these kind of issues, then if he wants to get a license, he could go into a very unique sector that we don't even know about and we made a KPI for ourselves that within five working days we would put that sector for him. Today what we know is the autonomous car, what we know is the uh, the cloud, but there are things that we don't know, we did not hear about. So if that particular person came with ideas, we would make that license for him. We'll make the rules for him. We'll make the regulations for him. Then all of these issues would boost up and develop the economy by relying not on oil and non-oil sectors. This is, in a nutshell, about Ghadan 21. And what's interesting about the the new uh, initiatives announced today is that it seems some of them have come about because of uh, dialogue with the private sector. So Ghadan 21 isn't a static initiative that, you know, the the plans were formulated and that's it, we're going to go for three years. That's the way it is. It's going to continuously change depending on what the private sector feeds back to you. Good question. The majority of what we heard today, if not all of them, were 
proposed by the private sector. We have a very strong belief that to, to develop the economy, to develop the society, to develop the knowledge, the private sector must be part of that. So one of the initiatives, for example, schools, we're talking about schools. Today the government has issued schools, but run by the private sector, believing that the private sector would do a change for the economy. So most of what you heard today, they are coming from the, from the private sector. And perfectly said from your side, it is not three years. We are putting the platform legally, technically, financially, and even culture-wise. We are, we are setting, laying down this platform to, inshallah, see it as sustainable growth in all aspects that we have talked about. And one last thing, um, should we expect going forward to hear more things to come out from the Ghadan 21 program as we go into 2020? As usual, as usual, because if you heard about it at the beginning, it was maybe simple, within time it grew up, and now it is even growing up. Even the ideas used to be simple, now more sophisticated. So we know the private sector are greedy, which is good. So we give them more, they ask for more, and this is what we want. We want to encourage that. So we want them to come back to us uh, with new ideas. Um, so that was Rashid al-Blushi, the uh, Undersecretary at the Department of Economic Development. That was down at Sadia Island where they had this private sector forum event for Ghadin 21. Um, they announced um, nine, sort of eight plus one, nine initiatives, eight and then a bonus <laughs> initiative. Yeah. Um, so the first one you mentioned earlier, um, a discount on electricity tariffs for industrial customers, um, up to 40%, depending on size and scope. Um, number two, they ha have now licenses for 13 activities related to technology, such as robotics or the cloud or automated transport. Um, number three, an open data program, uh, which is sort of supposed to spark a kind of open data culture in the Emirate for decision makers to have access to the right information uh, when they need it. Um, 10 to 15 extra services are now on the TAM digital system um, for businesses in the Emirate. Uh, number five, uh, you mentioned as well, corporate fund for R&D, uh, 4 billion dirhams is the value. Uh, number six, ecotourism, greenfield projects will be incentivized in Murfa in the Western region on des in the desert and also on private islands. Um, number seven, as a matter of course now, if you are a supplier to the government, you must be paid within 30 days. Um, and again, the Sharaka initiative, which this is part of, was announced last summer, and they made a real effort to um, to pay off uh, any outstanding dues. And it seems like, except for a small amount of subcontractors, this has pretty much been done, but they want to say going forward, you will be paid in that mm -hmm. time frame. Um, number eight, uh, which is interesting, and we can kind of get into this, um, they, there was a, an agreement signed between the government and FAB, the bank, that they will offer SME loans um, with 75% of each loan amount guaranteed by the government in case of default by the SME. And then finally, and this is sort of the bonus announcement, if you like, the eight, the plus one of the eight plus one, um, is a new initiative called Instant License, which is exactly what you might think it is, um, you get a license, a business license in four minutes. So it's um, about as long as it takes for the kettle to boil. Does, <laughs> or your Starbucks order to be ready. Uh, depending yeah. on which Starbucks. It's depending on where right. you are. Um, yeah, so a raft of exciting new initiatives. I actually think, I'm most curious, I think, about the open data program. I think that that's such an interesting uh, kind of surprise. Uh, you know, what was said was that they've really listened to the private sector in kind of prescribing these new initiatives. And access to data will really help the private sector match 
actual community needs to what they're offering if they've got access to the right data. So I think that uh, the outcome of that could potentially be really cool. Yeah, as Mr. Belushi said um, a little bit earlier, the uh, the whole point of this is that Red N21 is not a static, fixed thing that they announced a year ago and that's it. There's been so much consultation um, between the government and the private sector to find out what do you need. So, you know, as you quite rightly said, one of them is we need we need more access to data and information. We need to know it can't be a black box. Things can't be walled off. Mm-hmm. Um, information isn't really power anymore, actually. It's sharing information is, is power, right? far more powerful. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing for the UAE to kind of get out in front of. Uh, and I like that they're taking sort of a agile approach, agile stance to the 36 months that they've put in place with this 50 billion dirhams. Like what he was saying was, we're going to continue to listen. So what we've announced at the six month mark, you know, we've only gotten more sophisticated in our ideas and in our focuses. And so uh, I'm curious to see what what the next 36 months will bring. Uh, he he also recognized, uh, Mr. Belushi, that they nobody really knows um, where technology is taking us. Right, the known unknowns. <laughs> To, to paraphrase, to un- an unfortunate paraphrase yeah. um, of, of Donald Rumsfeld. Um, the, the the idea being that they what they don't want is whatever the technology that emerges. Like everybody knows now, sort of emergent technologies include blockchain or robotics or automate you know automated cars. Um, that in the future should other technologies emerge, that not having the right license in the system as a category isn't going to stop. Right. It it coming here basically. Right, and that um, all an entrepreneur or business owner needs to do is inform the government what it is they're working on, and the lack of a box to check is no longer yeah right, what you're saying a dead end. Uh, the government really wants to say, hey, we're listening, and we want to make these opportunities open. We also want to provide funding to you uh, through either the R and D fund, through the Khalifa fund, or through SME loans, which uh, they are now making available through FAB. And I think the SME loans one is is really fascinating because there's been a lot of complaints from from business owners saying, you know, bank lending is difficult for us. And there's been a number of initiatives, actually, efforts to promote um, lending to SMEs. Uh, but the truth is it's pretty risky for banks. At least they see it that way. Um, you know, we, we could get bogged into a debate about um, how much risk assessment they're really doing. Um, but equally... You know, it's also been expensive right. to borrow as an SME. I mean, and, and memory is short. I mean, they're still dealing with what they learned post-2014 when the oil price tanked. And True. Uh, so I think what the Abu Dhabi Investment Office is trying to do is say, hey, we'll back up to 75%. So the risk is somewhat mitigated. Uh, FAB will come in as sort of one of the as the biggest bank in the UAE, kind of a, a first leader on this. Uh, but other banks, yes, you're open to join our platform as well. Um, and then it just gives SME owners sort of a path to growth. Um, and SMEs are kind of the backbone of the UAE, which I think surprises uh, some people who think of Abu Dhabi and Dubai as kind of company towns uh, of these big, massive multinationals. But really, you know, half of GDP comes from S- SMEs in the UAE. So they're really important. And the, um, I do think the government's really trying to amplify uh what they're capable of doing. Yeah, they, they said today they want to almost double, at least in Abu Dhabi, not talking UAE, um, where this ratio is a little bit different, but they almost want to double 
um, the contribution to GDP of SMEs to you know close to a quarter, um, which would be you know really significant uh, in terms of economic activity. You know, it'd probably be easier. I think they realise to create jobs, um, sort of on that long tail, if you like, of lots of small businesses um, hiring people rather than you know, like you said, big corporations. Right on three-year contracts. Yes, I think uh, people working for small and medium-sized companies are a little more wedded to those places. Uh, at least culturally, uh, it it can feel, especially, I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, uh, not much can get done in three years. Uh, so it takes time. And that's, uh, I think, path to funding, paths to funding, multiple paths to different types of funding um, is really savvy. So we, we talk about small businesses, and then let's look at the big sort of industrial players that got a really nice surprise, which was um, they can take part in a, a, a program that will potentially give them discounts of up to 40% on their electricity. And I did hear anecdotally, you know, how excited some of the big industrial players in Abu Dhabi were. Um, and, and part of this is actually, um, they talked about why they're doing this. One, they want to help um, you know, the big contributors to Abu Dhabi's economy in terms of industry. They want to help them to uh, be more efficient. They want to help them be able to boost their revenues, but they also want a more competitive ecosystem. They have listened and heard that, you know, energy costs are, you know, a, an issue. So they've said that if you qualify, and 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 it seemed the two main criteria for qualification is one, you're um, using technology in your processes. You know, you are efficient in terms of automation or robotics, whatever it is. But also that you're a contribute, a big contributor to the UAE economy. That might be through employment or investment. Um, you know, maybe the the, the the amount of your the value of your plants, whatever it is, um, you could potentially get up to 40% um, mm. off your electricity bills for the next 10 years. Wow. And that's an interesting combination of both kind of a, a, a stimulus and also an incentive. Um, it'll be interesting to see if companies try to vie for that type of discount by rejigging maybe their supply chain or how they're building their products to become more maybe AI-centric or tech-focused. Um I mean, a lot of these things are being fleshed out, um, but there's a theme running through it. The two, the two main themes that I kind of got from the event, one was they're listening genuinely, mm-hmm. you know, which can only be good news. And so that means in the future, whatever changes there are, you know, not just massive things like, you know, macro oil price changes, but smaller things on the ground, the government will, will hear about it quicker. Um, and there's this mechanism now that all these departments are out there listening, doing outreach. Um, but secondly, um, that it's about contribution um, to to the overall ecosystem here. So the four billion R and D fund, the, they indicated that the R and D that will be funded through this will potentially benefit everybody. That there may be a chance for whatever innovations are obtained to actually. Not not just benefit one entity or one company, but everybody. Sure, that it can be applied to actual society yes. in our daily lives. Yeah, and tied to the open data culture. Mm-hmm. This is all quite interesting language. Yeah, that it's, we're hearing. It's new. It's definitely new language for the UAE. So 
yeah, it's exciting. Good. So the future seems bright. Um, a little bit more immediate is the tensions in the region that everyone's focusing on uh, between the US and Iran. Um, last week, we came pretty close to an escalation, if you like, um, when uh, a US drone was shot down by mm -hmm. the Iranians. Um, and there, there was almost a, a retaliatory strike, but that didn't happen. So now everybody's kind of waiting to see what the next step is. Oil prices reacted. I mean, they picked up. I mean, they've been they've been treading water for a while. Right? Sure, they hit a three month high on Monday. They've um, we woke up this morning to uh, President Trump slapping some maybe uh, I don't know symbolic uh, sanctions on Iran, and that kind of rendered oil prices maybe a bit inert. Uh, they haven't really moved much today. Um, Adnock's chief executive was in London this afternoon, and he just kind of said, we have no interest in this escalating, and uh, this really needs to be neutralized. Yeah, and, and you know, the, there's been a lot more talk in recent days. Even uh, John Bolton, who is this sort of the pantomime villain of, of everything at the moment, <laughs> the guy who wants war uh, beyond yeah. all things, um, he even was saying, you know, the door is open to Iran for negotiations. Um, the Iranians, of course, are, are not softening their stance either. No, it's a little, I mean, it's a little scary because uh, sanctions seem to have frozen diplomatic relations for now. At least that's been the verbalization today. But, you know, it seems like it's on a day-by-day -day basis as to what's going on. So everyone's asking what next, what's going to happen, what's going to go on over the summer. Um, uh, the Nationals energy columnist, uh, Robert Mills, is also CEO of Kamar Energy and the author of The Myth of the Oil Crisis. Um, he wrote a great column this week outlining the possible outcomes for oil markets, depending on the, you know, five scenarios of of, of how things play out. Mm -hmm, yes. uh, so uh, we 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 spoke to him uh, a little bit earlier, just to, to sort of get in more detail of 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 what he thinks um, oil markets going to do, depending on, on on various outcomes. Uh, so, Robin, in your, in your column this week, um, which I recommend everybody reads at thenational.ae, you outline uh, scenarios for the oil markets based on five possible outcomes from the current uh, tensions in the Gulf region. Um, the five are, I'll list them briefly, and then we can kind of get into detail. Uh, if there's a deal, that's number one, um, between, I guess, the US, its allies, and Iran. Uh, two, uh, everyone kind of steps back. Uh, from where they are now. Uh, number three, tensions continue as they are uh, for longer term. Four, some kind of escalation. And then five, uh, what nobody wants, which is all-out conflict. Um, so, you know, th th that's what you outlined in your column, right, Robin? Yes, exactly. That's how I see it as a, as a kind of continuum from a a uh, deal and peaceful resolution up to, uh, you know, as you say, uh, the, the worst case of outright conflict. So in in scenario, uh, for scenario for the oil markets, sort of in the context of if there was suddenly a deal, um, at le or at least it looks like there would be a new deal. I know both sides have kind of said, um, well, the US has said the door is open for negotiations and the Iranians said, we don't really feel this is the right spirit for negotiations. But let's say they got past that and we did get a new deal that tackled nuclear and other um, issues. What would happen to the oil price then? Well, I think we'd then see sanctions being progressively lifted on Iran. So it would be like the situation under the, the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action signed under President Obama when the various sanctions that the U.S. had imposed on Iran's oil exports at that point were lifted. Um, Iran's oil exports would come 
back on the market, perhaps not completely, but uh, but to a large extent, which would mean over a period of months, a million or a million and a half barrels a day coming back on the market. Um, and that would you know, undoubtedly have a significant uh, impact prices would push them down quite significantly. Um, you know, we've seen an oil market now, which is, I guess, surprisingly relaxed tensions and, and, and is really particularly concerned about demand and, and the world economy and the effect of possible trade wars and tariffs and so on. Um, so if into a relatively weak market you add a million and a half barrels per day of extra production, that, that of course is going to push prices down and they might go back to the, the $40 a barrel level that we had a, a couple of years back. Uh, I would think OPEC, the other OPEC countries would try and accommodate this to an extent and um, but, but for them to make even deeper production cuts than they already have um, starts becoming quite painful, and there's only a few countries that, that may be willing to cut a bit more. Um, and then, of course, uh, that in a way would be accommodating the return of Iran, which they also might be unwilling to, to do. So it's, um, it'd be a bit, of a, a bit of a problem, I think, for the oil, major oil producers in that case. Uh, how do they deal with a lot of oil suddenly coming back on the market? And, and scenario, uh, scenario number two for oil markets, if the situation is that both sides kind of step back, which is we're seeing a little bit of that at the moment, despite the rhetoric, um, you know, after the drone was shot down um, and then we almost had a, a, a retali- retaliatory strike. We didn't have that. And then now it seems um, even though sanctions uh, new sanctions have been applied. They don't really materially um, raise raise the game um, in that sense. So let's assume that this is the start of a step back. Then what happens to oil prices? Well, I think, you know, the recent sanctions, it appears the US is kind of really running out of things to sanction. That's, so petrochem- uh, petrochemicals, metals, and then now the uh, the personalities in the regime. The, the, the indeed, and... Yes, and the Supreme Leader and you know, various other important uh, people in the regime. But, it meant, you know, they're not holding a lot of money in U.S. bank accounts. So I think the practical of that is, is going to be pretty small. Um, it's more, you know, it's more symbolic. Um, you know, as you say, I think there have been signs that both sides were, were trying to step back a little bit over the past few days from the, uh, from the escalation. There's a possible, there's some willingness, uh, at least rhetorical willingness on both sides to negotiate. Uh, I think they're still... I'm not really sure what they would negotiate about at the moment, um, but at least if they, if they cool things down, I think if you if you look under the Obama era sanctions again, you know President Obama didn't try to take Iranian oil exports below a million barrels per day. That was about the bottom, um, and that was partly, I think, to avoid backing Iran completely into a corner. It was partly because he didn't want to make the oil market too tight at that point, um, and and to. Other countries such as China are under real pressure to, uh, to, to, to go along with those sanctions. Donald Trump, of course, has pushed much harder, and he said, you know, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, has said that the goal is to drive Iranian exports to zero, so really giving them no way out. Now, if, if the US were to step back to that, to a more accommodating stance and were to issue waivers for Iranian oil imports like it did um, late last year, so to allow China, India, Turkey, maybe others to import a limited amount of Iranian oil. That would be a de-escalation. Um, that might be enough to stop Iran lashing out further. And, and then the oil price would be you know, softened to, to an extent, although that would, of course, be much easier to accommodate than, than a full return of Iranian production. And if tensions were to continue, and I guess 
what what we could mean by that is if the threat to shipping um, in the Gulf of Oman, the waterways around the Strait of Hormuz, uh, remained, uh, you know, a factor, and then if we continue to have um, the the Houthi rebels who are backed by Iran uh, firing on the Saudis um, as they recently hit the Abha airport again, then that uh, and in Iraq, of course, um, there's been some rocket attacks on various um, interests uh, related to the U.S. Uh, if that continued now, um, say for the next few months, uh, would we continue to see sort of slow rise in crude prices as we have been now? I think if we see a steady re- repeat of these kind of instances, tankers being, as you say, tankers being attacked here and there and attacks on pipelines and, and uh, some oil facilities in Iraq and then, and then other non-oil facilities and, um, you know, so the close to the territory in Yemen that, that can be attacked from there. Um, I think that will put a certain amount of tension in the oil market. We're seeing the oil market you know, fairly relaxed, I think, about the, the incident so far. I mean, they're serious, you know, and we, and we certainly shouldn't downplay them. But the oil price has gone up by 3 or $4 a barrel with the attack on, on those two tankers. Um, I think that, as I said, the market is more concerned at the moment. It's still about demand and, and the strength of the economy and so on. So as long as there's, a, there's a, an occasional attack on a tanker that doesn't seriously affect navigation, an occasional attack on facilities of the accident in Iraq, and not to damage any significant facilities yet, um, the attack on the Saudi oil pipeline a little while back again was, was very quickly repaired. Um, I think the market will kind of get used to it and, and, and end up t- tuning this out a bit. Um, it's just, just kind of background noise. Um, and, you know, if it's not seriously affecting supplies. Now, insurance rates have, have jumped, so probably that's adding 10 cents a barrel to the cost of a, of a tanker coming out of um, coming out of the Gulf and sailing through areas that have now been declared war warm areas. So that's a cost that, uh, that has to be absorbed by by the sellers or the, or the shippers. Um, so 10 cents a barrel is not nothing, but um, but within the context of a few dollars per barrel, it's a, a relatively limited impact. And if we say escalation, that would be something that would potentially disrupt either production or the movement of um, crude and crude-related products. Um, then, you know that, that that would that would be considered significant, I imagine. Right. I mean, I guess you can think of many kinds of escalation, but there could be further attacks on tankers you know, to, to a greater extent. So, navigation in and out of the Gulf becomes much more hazardous. Could be more serious attacks on oil facilities, pipelines. Could be a major cyber attack that, that shuts down production. Um, it could be something in Iraq to do with attacks on facilities or or, uh, or protests or something that, that, that then closes closes down facilities. Uh, and there could be things we're not even thinking of. I mean, I'm sure the Iranians have had several years to to plan a response and uh, and, and maybe have other things up their sleeve. And of course, it could be an escalation on the U.S. side. You know, we. we we hear the U.S. was very close to bombing Iranian facilities in response to these tanker attacks and, and the shooting down of the, dr- the U.S. drone. Um, they didn't go ahead, but uh, but of course they, they might do in response to some other incident. Um, or there may be something accidental. You know, I think that's a dangerous feature of this situation. The two sides are not really able to talk to each other, except through intermediaries. And it's, uh, it's certainly risky that something could ha- unexpected could happen. Commanders on the ground uh, panic and, and lose their heads and... Uh, and and some much more serious incident develops.
And finally, if if we talk about all-out conflict, and I remember the uh, invasion of Iraq, 2003, or I think of the um, 1990, 1991, um, you know, Desert Shield, Desert Storm after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait um, as examples of, of, of regional conflicts, um, the, 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 it seems the main difference now is that the U.S. is pretty self-sufficient when it comes to to energy, unlike it has been in the past. So they won't feel... Um, a conflict in the Middle East at the pumps, so to speak, in the US as they they might have done before. So really the effect of the conflict would be to the East on uh, consumers, customers in Asia like China, Japan, South Korea? So if there were a widespread conflict and oil exports out of the Gulf were seriously affected, um, that would um, affect the oil supplies, of course, to India, China, and you know, other parts of East Asia. Prices would rise to perhaps $100 a barrel or more. Now, the U.S. is not importing very much oil from, from the Gulf anymore itself. But nevertheless, the U.S. economy is still connected to the world oil market, unless the U.S. is going to impose some kind of ban on, on imports and exports of oil. And so if the oil price does go up, and U.S. motorists will, will, will fill out of the pump. Now, U.S. shale oil producers will do very well, make a lot of money in that situation. That, that may help some states like Texas and, and uh, Alaska and uh, Oklahoma and big oil-producing states. It'll be very bad for, um, for for average U.S. consumers. And I think that's, that's a political outcome that Donald Trump would, would want to avoid, particularly heading into an election year. Um, and the I think the other side of that is that the U.S. military presence in the Gulf is also gives the U.S. leverage. And if... As, as Donald Trump has suggested, there would be a Chinese military force or Japanese military force in, in the Gulf helping to protect oil supplies. That takes away the U.S. Uh, monopoly of force over the region. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that may, may seem like a kind of burden-sharing thing for now, but it has, has dangerous implications down the line. So essentially, in that last scenario, um, we're, you know, the, the, the worst-case scenario in terms of, I guess, Oil consumers would be a hundred dollars a barrel, um, but that necessarily wouldn't be great for um, oil producers, given that that would obviously impact demand, and it would it would have an impact on world economic growth as well. And really, we want we don't want to see oil prices spike that high, do we? Yes, I think the oil producers have generally felt, learning from their experience in the seventies, that stable prices at a, at a reasonable level um, are, are preferable to, to a brief spike. And, and then a collapse in prices. And I think that's even more so now because you can imagine if we had a spike over $100 a barrel, that gives a tremendous push to non-oil technologies like electric vehicles. And a lot of countries then will say, well, the oil is insecure and, and we need to maybe subsidize electric vehicles more, encourage them in, in whatever way. Um, and that takes away demand permanently. And of course, if you're a producer in the region and oil is $100 a barrel because your exports have been cut off, then that's, that's obviously not much comfort to you. Um, you know, and, and some countries in the Gulf, like Saudi and the UAE, have alternative routes to export their oil, whereas others like, like Iraq and Kuwait uh, have, have very few options and are so much more exposed. Um, Robin Mills, that was your five outcomes for the oil markets, uh, depending on various scenarios um, of regional tensions. You can read Robin's full uh, column at the national.ae. Um, he's also CEO of Kamar Energy. Thanks for talking to us again, Robin, this week. Thank you.
Kelsey, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Um, please, if you've enjoyed this show, uh, do subscribe. Um, also, leave a review for us. It's always nice. Um, let us thank our producer, Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. Do join us again next time. <laughs>